Well, it's good to get a lot of Bible in up front, isn't it? There you go. That's, that's starting the new, the new year right, isn't it? The question that we're going to be wrestling with throughout the series is, what does it mean to live as a Christian in the midst of this world? Or maybe more specifically, what does it mean to live as a Christian in the midst of a world that looks like it is getting increasingly more godless or increasingly more wicked? To phrase the question collectively, what does it mean to be the church in the midst of the city? And what I mean by this is, what does it mean to be the people of God living in a world whose God is not Christ? Whose God is something else, other things, other allegiances, other loyalties? What are we to do as Christians in the midst of it? I'll tell you, I can think of at least two common responses by Christians in America. The first is to say, you know what, as the world gets darker and more wicked and more sinful, I'll tell you what Christians need to do. We need to take a stand for our faith. You've heard this. Except that taking a stand for our faith has nothing to do with actually preaching Christ and Christ crucified. Taking a stand for our faith means picketing gay marriage or saying something loudly and clearly from a megaphone, saying, all of you are going to hell. And so taking a stand for Christ turns into doing something that Christ himself never actually did. Now, of course, before Christmas, there was some little kerfluffle about a bearded man and an interview in a men's fashion magazine. Maybe you heard about it. (laughs) And the Phil Robertson comments about stuff in GQ touched on many issues, and I can't possibly address all of them this morning, nor do I want to. Some of them relate to religious liberties and civil liberties, and I understand that, free speech, and so there are people much better equipped than I to talk about the civil liberties, religious freedoms kind of aspect of that. I'll leave that alone. There are also the complexities of how human sexuality works, which was not at all addressed in that interview, and I'll leave that aside for people better than me. What is curious to me as it relates to this series is how many Christians applauded Phil and said, this is what it means to take a stand for Christ. He was asked a question, and by golly, he answered it, forgetting that Jesus, too, was asked many questions that he remained silent. That in the face of Pilate interrogating Jesus, the Son of God, even Jesus didn't take a stand for himself. And that when Peter, the disciple, tried to take a stand for Christ and drew his sword to fight, Jesus said, put your sword away. I'm going to heal the man's ear who you just cut off. And all of a sudden we realize maybe we've got this take a stand for Jesus thing a little bit wrong. But we are convinced that the way to live in a secular world is to engage in a culture war and to stand for Jesus and to call sinners sinners and to just throw it in their face. This is what it means. Others of you say, no, I, I, I actually I was quite uncomfortable with that interview. I mean, I had mixed feelings about it. But really, you know what I think it means for a Christian to live in a secular world is what we need to do is we just need to beat the world at its own game. And so maybe you've heard pastors say things like this, where you say, okay, you know what? The world values successful people and rich people and, 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 and beautiful people and people who seem to be living the good life. So you know what? Christians ought to be living the best life of all. Maybe you've heard this. 
And many pastors in the prosperity gospel movement, though they deny that label, I don't know what else to call it, but they say, you know what, you know why I live this high life? You know why I have this 10,000 square foot home? You know why, you know why I do this? Because I want to show that Christians are the head and not the tail. Have you heard this? I want to show that I'm the, listen, my private jet is not about me. It's about showing that in the kingdom, we live like princes. We live like kings. And there's another version of this prosperity gospel that's much more subtle. It works like this. It says if you follow Jesus, you will be perfect parents. Your children will be perfect little angels. A, a mother can stay home and work and run a blog that has, reaches millions <laughs> and is this a genius decorator. So she's like working Pinterest and, and then cooks like paleo cuisine every night. And she and her husband have great sex every night. that okay to say in church? Because this is the message you get at certain conferences that Christians are basically like the new Hollywood glam celebrities. And that to be followers of Jesus means you're like the it couple. And you've got it together. You're shiny and you're bright. And so I know of some megachurch pastors who did a whole sex challenge. And they, they said, listen, Christians should have the best sex of anybody in the world. And their whole logic is predicated on this, this thing of, you know how we live in the world? We beat the world at its own game. I want to expose both of those approaches as a sham. I want to say that both of those things are a lie. And actually, it's not just me that wants to say it. I think it's Paul who wants to say it. Now, some of you instantly, you're already kind of, you're, you're, you know, you're cringing because we've, we've said sex and we've talked about gay marriage and duck dynasty and we're five minutes into the sermon. Mmm! <laughs> you can't read Corinthians and not get real, people. Because some of us are nervous and we feel like the world is as wicked as it's ever been. And I want to tell you about ancient Corinth. I want to tell you what Corinth was like. So here's a map of Corinth. You'll see there's, it's, it's close to a body of water. There's a little isthmus, a piece of land that connects it over to Athens. And if you look the next slide over, here's a picture of, in the modern day because you can see newer houses and, and buildings. But look at that. Look at that beautiful body of water. You're like, man, vacation in Corinth. Ancient Corinth during the Hellenistic period, so I had to look this up too, so don't worry if you don't remember when the Greeks ruled the world, but that was about 323 BC to about 146 BC. Ancient Corinth during the heyday of the Greek empire was a center of industry and trade, commercialized pleasure, one commentary said. But then Greece was conquered by Rome in 196 BC. Corinth was declared free for a short time and then was completely destroyed by a dude named Mummius in 146 BC. Look, if your mummy named you Mummius, you might be pretty mad at the world too. <laughs> so he destroyed Corinth. And it lay in ruins for a hundred years. A hundred years. And then Julius Caesar in 46 BC decreed that it be rebuilt. Let it be rebuilt and let it be a Roman colony. So it became founded as a Roman colony. In fact, many Roman soldiers and, and, and war veterans would settle into Corinth as a retirement place. Eventually, Corinth became the capital of this province of Achaia. If you look back, don't go back to the map on the screen, but, but if you remembered at the map, that little 
uh, it's not quite an island because there's an isthmus connecting it, but that whole province is Achaia, and Corinth became the capital of it. In Paul's time, it was probably a population of about a quarter million, 250,000 people, made up of local Greeks, large number of Jews, freedmen from Italy, Roman government officials, businessmen, veterans. In fact, it was kind of the city of the nouveau riche, the new rich, the ones who had kind of pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made money for themselves. They had made things happen. This is an American city if there ever was one. This is the place where we say, you know what? We took a, a bunch of people who came from all over Europe and all over different countries and all over Asia and all over, and we said, you know what? We're going to work hard and we're going to make industry happen and boom, here it is. This is definitely a city we can relate to. It became a favorite spot of Roman emperors, probably because of its nice seaside location. It became the site of, a bi, of bi, the biannual Isthmian Games, which are not quite as famous as the Olympic Games, but, but maybe we can bring it back. But the Isthmian Games were second, actually, only to the Olympic Games, and it happened every two years. AD 49, AD 51, Paul would have arrived in Corinth shortly after one round of the Isthmian Games and would have been living there during the second, the next round. But Corinth is known for its temples. So look at this next slide, this, this next picture here. In the near, in the foreground, you see these ruins. That's the temple of Apollo. Now, Apollo's temple was really in its heyday during the Hellenistic period. So we're talking 300 BC or so. But it was still kind of going and still active during Paul's day, during the first century. And so at Apollo's temple, they had statues of a naked Apollo as the symbol of male virility. And I don't mean to be crude here, but, but as part of this homage to masculine or this idea of male virility, they would have boys in the temple for, for men to demonstrate their male powerness with. Sick. In the background, you see on the hill what's called the Acrocorinth. The Acrocorinth is this mount, it looked like a volcano kind of top. It was about 2,000 feet high. I know to us in Colorado, that's not even a mountain, but okay. But it was the temple of Aphrodite. And if you think that name sounds familiar, it's because that is the goddess of sexuality and sexual prowess. So in a very disturbing way at the temple of Aphrodite, they had a thousand girls that would parade and solicit and illicit and try to encourage people to worship Aphrodite through fornication and immorality. This doesn't sound too different from when you think about, say, the industry that works to sell sex to us. Directly or indirectly, the subliminal messages, the overt messages, the little things that show up in just commercials or football games or whatever it is. Day after day, on this hill, people were reminded of a message that was being sent to them. This is what it means to be alive. This is what it means to be great. So what Corinthians valued was status and success, sexual prowess, sophistication, the sensational. There was a group of teachers that would walk through these Greek cities, including Corinth, called the Sophists. They were supposed to be the ones who were wise at debate. But their whole goal, where else there was, there was a Roman school of speech giving and a Corinthian school of speech giving. The Roman school was 
You were a good speech giver if you could illuminate the truth or clearly communicate the truth. But the Corinthian school of communication was you were a good sophist, you were a good teacher if you could win the crowd, whether or not what you were saying was true. Now, we can't relate to that, can we? That the smoothest, fastest talker wins the day, whether or not what he's saying is true. This is what Corinthians valued. In fact, there was a slang, a Greek comedian, yes, there were comedians in the early centuries, a Greek comedian would use the phrase to Corinthianize as a slang for fornication, for excessive immorality. So Corinth was a buzzword the same way maybe that we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, or the same way that we say maybe Californication, don't Californicate Colorado, those bumper stickers. Corinthianize was a buzzword in their day to say, oh, don't don't Corinthianize this. I'm talking about a city that is about as immoral as it gets. And what does Paul say to this city? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. If you're underlining as we study, and I recommend it, underline to the church of God. Because this is our first clue for this whole series. Paul doesn't say, to the world, to the city of Corinth, to the people of Corinth. Paul's not grabbing a megaphone. He's calling in the people of God. He's not looking to address the secular world and say, Corinth, you're going to hell. He says, to the church of God in Corinth. Can I say this up front, that our call is not to engage in a culture war. It is to embody a different way. Our call is not to engage in a culture war. It is to embody a different way. All through this letter, Paul is trying to show the church, what must you do in the midst of this city? You must live, embody, become different people. Live in a different way. See, we are not here to beat the world at its own game. We are here to show the emptiness of the game. Think of that, church. You are not here in the world to beat the world at its own game. You are here to show the emptiness, the hollowness, the lie, the sham of its game. This is why it really bothers me, and we're going to get to this when we get to chapter 4, 5, 6, 7. We're going to get to sexuality. But it bothers me when the church's message is, oh, you know what, we should have the most, you know, sort of rah-rah sort of sexuality. Listen, Paul's trying to say, actually, the, the right way to think about sexuality, to think about pleasure, to think about all these things, is to have it rightly ordered, to show that the world that idolizes sex, sex is a world that has gone mad, and that that game is empty, that that approach is hollow. So we're not here to beat the world at its own game. We're here to show the emptiness of this game. Paul arrives in Corinth around AD 50, and he stayed about 18 months. I think about this world that values culture and sophistication and, 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 and smooth talking and all of this stuff, and he says in chapter 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says he came in weakness. This next picture is a picture of the Agora, the marketplace. Of course, you know, in ruins today, but back then that was the main 
strip, the, 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 the market square. And probably when Paul entered the city, he came in here, and it's there that he met a couple, a couple of leather workers named Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jews that had fled from Rome. And Paul hits it off with them, and they become friends. And Paul says, I, I, I'm a leather worker too. I know how to work with canvas and all this stuff. And they're like, cool, let's stick together. And so in a very likely way, Paul worked in their shop and then lived in an apartment above the shop in the storefront. And the people of Corinth were wondering, why couldn't they get a professional teacher? In the ancient world, patronage really mattered. And so if you were a good teacher, you had someone who paid for you so you didn't have to have a job on the side. But here's Paul who says, I came in weakness, maybe because he had just been beaten in the cities before, maybe because he was physically ailing, maybe because he was up in his 40s and his, after all the beatings and persecutions and stonings, maybe his body was breaking at this point. But Paul says, I didn't come to you looking like the best teachers of your day. I came with weakness and trembling, but, but my message was the one that had the power. And the people of Corinth are thinking, yeah, but the, those sophists, those other teachers, they have full-time patrons. Aren't you a leather worker, Paul? Why are you doing this, Paul? You know why Paul's doing this? Because he's embodying a different way. He's trying to show the hollowness of the game. Verse 18 of chapter 1 is going to be our main text for today. Turn there with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, this is the key verse. A stumbling block to the Jews, underline that, and folly to Gentiles, underline that. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul came into Corinth deliberately with weakness, deliberately not to say, let me beat the Corinthians at their own game. Let me be the best speaker ever. See, I hate the kind of quasi-spiritual business leadership talk that says, Jesus was the best CEO. Jesus was the best salesman. Rubbish. If he was so good, they wouldn't have killed him. Nobody wanted to kill Steve Jobs. We want to immortalize him. Jesus was not this. And so Paul comes in, he says, you know what? I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to come in as you expect, slick and smooth and strong and savvy. I'm going to come in weak and frail and fragile, working part-time as a leather worker. Why? Because he says, my message is about a Christ, a Messiah who lived this very way. Now we're we're getting into something really tricky. So wait a minute. Are you telling me that Jesus was not like ultimate UFC fighter Jesus? Are you telling me that Jesus was not like Captain America? Are you telling me that Jesus was weak? No way. May it never be, Glenn. How dare you? Jesus was the best. Paul says we came preaching Jesus crucified. And he says it was... A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Let's start with the second phrase, foolishness. 
The word there just means foolishness. <laughs> and the Greeks just thought this was so confusing. Imagine going into a city and you're a business star, you're a CEO, you're an entrepreneur, and you're coming and you're meeting with your investors and you're saying, okay, guys, I want to start this company. I need your input. I need your money, actually. I need you to buy in. And they're like, okay, well, who, where have you worked before? What's your resume? And you say, you know what? My mentor in business, the person who taught me everything that I know about business, was this guy who took all of his shareholders' money and gave it away to the homeless. And he actually never started his company. And there's a silence in the boardroom, just like there is here. And they're like, that, that, that's your mentor? Yeah, no, that, that is my hero. This guy who like, took all of his startup capital and then gave it away to the homeless, and he, his business never got off the ground. And they're looking at you like, and, and you want me to invest in, in what you're doing? That's the folly. That's the food. Paul's saying, listen, my hero, my Lord, is the one whom the Rome crucified. And the Greeks are looking at Paul like, huh? That's your mentor? That's your hero? That's, your, that's, that's just foolishness. Who talks about a hero like that? Who talks about a savior like that? And then he says, Paul says, this is a stumbling block to the Jews. The word there is actually scandalon in Greek. And there's a, there's a, there's a lexicon tool. You, you guys in seminary will know this tool, the BDAG tool, which takes all of these Greek words and cross-references it with secular Greek, biblical Greek, and says these are the, the possible meanings and these are the verses that we think align with the different meanings. Well, scandalon could mean just a trap or a snare. It could mean something that causes someone to sin, but it can also mean that which causes offense and revulsion. Results, something that when you say it results in opposition and disapproval or hostility. And the best language scholars have said, when Paul says the cross was a stumbling block, he means scandalon in this sense. He means it in the sense of a of revulsion, something that when you say it makes people rise up in opposition because it's so offensive. Thistleton, Thistleton's commentary that I was reading in prepping for this says that the cross, crucifixion, was so distasteful that you couldn't bring it up at a dinner party. That if you were with friends at a meal, you just, that's something you just don't talk about. It's just, it's bad taste, it's bad form, it's it's disgusting. In fact, Thistleton goes on to point out that crucifixion was actually the punishment reserved for those accused of terrorism, threat to national security. What would it have been like to tell the Jews that your Messiah, which is what Christ means. Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. That's like saying, I preach a Messiah who was arrested and killed as a terrorist by Rome. Would that be like saying to an American that your teacher was held at Guantanamo? Who do you follow? Oh, dude, my, my mentor, my idol, the one I look up to. He was, yeah, he, I mean, he was, you know, accused of being a terrorist. They held him in Guantanamo. They, they, they waterboarded him. He just wouldn't answer their questions. I, th- I think he died. But that's my man. It's getting uncomfortable in the room, isn't it? You don't know the scandal of saying Christ crucified until you feel this. Because we, we, ha- we are happy, clappy. Jesus crucified! Woohoo! 
Hallelujah. When Paul said, I preach Christ crucified, people were either scratching their heads or ready to throw stones because they're like, how dare you? How can you say that? That's offensive. That, that, that's, that's vulgar. That, that, that's, that's, that's insane. How can you talk like this? What kind of Messiah comes and instead of defeating the enemies gets killed by them? What kind of a hero is this? What kind of a God would do this? What kind of a God would do this? A God who came to save. A God who came to get low. A God who came so that no sinner would be too offensive to be saved. See, Paul says in the rest of this text, he says, listen, (laughs) basically he's saying, aren't you glad that Jesus did this? Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Stop pretending. According to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful. How many of you were of noble birth? How many of you were like born with a silver spoon in your mouth? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the, the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And he says, and because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us the wisdom of God, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what Paul is saying. Yeah, yeah, I preach a Jesus who by all accounts looked like a failure, suffered the most offensive end to his life. I preach Christ crucified. Do you know why? Because that's where the good news is. That's where the good news is. See, I think Christians today, we want to jump to resurrection. We want to glory in saying, okay, yes, victorious Jesus. I even wrote, I've written songs, victorious God, my Savior lives. I love resurrection too. But I'll tell you what we miss when we miss the crucified Christ. We miss that Jesus became low so that no one is too low to be saved. Jesus became low, so that no one is too low to be saved. Jesus became the repulsive, offensive, scandalous thing, so that your sin, how matter, how, no matter how ugly and offensive and grotesque it is, it does not make the Father go like this, because he says, listen, there is a way now. My son became the re- re- repulsive one. Isaiah 53, we, we didn't consider him someone to look at. He was despised, he was rejected, but it was our sins that made him so. It was our sin that made him so. Because Jesus became a nobody, all the nobodies in the world can be saved. Because Jesus became the nobody. All the nobodies in the world can be saved. Now for some of you, you're thinking, you see it right away. This is good news. Because Glenn, there's things, there's skeletons in the closet, there are things that I've done, there's thoughts that I've had, there's, I'm ashamed. That if people were to know it, I wouldn't bring it up at dinner company either. It's just, it's too, And all of a sudden, you know that God came to carry that. 
that God came and became himself scorned, despised, rejected, carrying our shame, carrying our sin, so that the Father doesn't look at you and say, oh, but the Father can look at you and say, come home. And Some of you right away, you get it. It's good news. Others of you, you're still wrestling with this because you're like, <clears throat> we're in church. I'm pretty good. And I haven't done anything that bad. I mean, even before I came to Christ, I mean, I just, maybe I told one or two lies as a child, but I was pretty good. And Glenn, this stuff is like, ooh. And our upbringing and our culture has taught us to sort of button up, look right, smile. And Paul's saying, can I just pull the curtain back? Who do you think you are, church in Corinth? Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you. Who were you before Christ? And he goes on and he lists certain things. And throughout the letter, we find out some of who they were before Christ. And it ain't pretty. And Paul's saying, don't you get it? You would not be saved if Jesus did not become foolish and weak in the world's eyes. But because he did, then you who are weak and foolish get to now be strong. And so Christ crucified is not a scandal and foolishness. Christ crucified is power and wisdom redefined. Christ crucified becomes power and wisdom redefined. And church, would you bow your heads with me this morning? We're going to be on this journey for the next many weeks, a chapter a week. And we're going to need to keep coming back to this foundation over and over again. That we cannot be the people of God embodying a different way, living different, being different in the midst of the world. We cannot get on with that without coming back to the cross over and over and over again. It doesn't do any good for me to preach sermons about saying, okay, come on church, let's be different, let's live different, let's do this, let's do that. Unless we start at the cross, unless we start by saying, my God, where was I without you? What would I be without Jesus? What was I? And then I want you to look at this cross on the stage, this bare wooden cross, and to say, God in heaven, the Son of God came and allowed himself to be rejected and despised, foolishness, scandalous. So that no one, no one should be left out. So that all who call on his name can and will be saved.